You're listening to Booth One. Welcome, loyal listeners, to another episode of Booth One, episode 102, your one-stop podcast for the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski, your host here. I'm flying solo today, and I'm joined in the booth by two extraordinary creative artists and human beings. It's my pleasure to welcome Wardale Julius Clark and Regina Victor to our program. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. How are you? I'm excellent on this uh, beautiful fall Sunday. (laughs) Neither of you have rehearsal today, so it's kind of a day off, right? A rare occurrence. Uh, Yes. A rare occurrence. It was tough getting you both here at the same time because you're both so busy. I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about each of you. Correct me if I go wrong in either way, all right? Any any way whatsoever. Regina Victor is a non-binary femme of color and born and raised in Oakland, California. Did I get that correct? Yes. Now residing in Chicago, uh, they were mentored by directors and including Felicia Rashad, Anna Shapiro, Rael, Myrick Hodges, and mm. Dania Tamor. Dania's been a... Uh, oh, yes, Dania Tamor. Dania, yeah, yeah. excuse me. No, She's great. been a guest on our program before. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we, we had her on with... Who did we have her on with? Antoinette Nwandu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another wonderful human. Victor has helped develop world premieres by the aforementioned Antoinette Nwandu, uh, Brett Neveu, uh, Sarah Rule, and Morgan McNaught, and Loy Webb, uh, The Light and His Shadow, His yes. Shadow, which we just saw, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, among others. Recent credits include assistant directing The Roommate and Familiar at Steppenwolf. I saw one of those. I didn't see Familiar. <laughs> Pipeline at Indiana Rep and Dramaturging too heavy for your pocket and to catch a fish (laughs) love that show at timeline theater yes ron oj parson ron oj what a great cast that was other collaborations include work at victory gardens about face writers theater shattered globe the new colony walkabout theater and california shakespeare you're a busy busy person as a (laughs) critic uh, their writing can be found in howl round american theater magazine the windy city times and on rescripted uh, which is the arts journalism platform that they founded in 2017. I'm going to ask you more about that. Uh-oh. Let me uh, go on to Wardell here. It's <laughs> just as fascinating and just as diverse. Uh, Wardell Julius Clark hails from Fairfield, Alabama. Where is Fairfield? Is that near Atlanta at all? Or? Uh, it, yeah, Fairfield is I, It's essentially like a, th- a three-mile city right next to Birmingham. So I'm from ah. Birmingham, Alabama, but Fairfield is actually the town that I was actually born and raised in and uh, it's about 90 minutes from Atlanta. You are an actor, director, and producer here in Chicago. Directing credits include The Shipment, Insurrection, Holding History at Stage Left, Surely Goodness and Mercy at Red Twist, His Shadow again at 16th Street Theater. Regina, you served as dramaturg for His Shadow yes, and did. Wardell, you directed it. Yes. We saw that a few weeks ago, and again, I'm going to talk about that uh, in more detail in a moment. Associate Director for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner at Court Theater, Assistant Director for Court's Productions of Gem of the Ocean and Satchmo at the Waldorf. Your acting credits include Tell Me If I'm Making You Blush, Suddenly Last Summer, Silent Sky, Apartment 3A, that was at Windy City Playhouse, and A Raisin in the Sun at Timeline, The Whipping Man, We Are Proud to Present, and The Gospel 
gospel according to James at Victory Gardens, Invisible Man at Court, The Beats at 16th Street, Ghosts at Atwood. I could go on and on and on. By the way, you received the, the Black Theater Alliance Denzel Washington Award for Most Promising Actor for your performance in Ghosts of Atwood. Yes, yes. That That's pretty flashy. cool. <laughs> <laughs> I am That's mostly, pretty cool. It was. It was really, really cool. I'm excited. We're going tomorrow yeah. to, the, to the BTAA. So oh, very, excellent. Yeah. And you were in Top Dog, Underdog, an American theater company, Congo Square. Uh, you are an associate artist with Timeline Theater. But now a company member. Also, now a company member as well. Congratulations. Yeah, I was an associate artist, and I've been a company member for the past two years. You also serve there as a teaching artist in the Living History Program, and also an associate artist with Black Lives, Black Words Theater Collective, and you have a BFA in acting from DePaul University. That is all true. Let me start with you, Wardell. How did you get all the way from Fairfield, Alabama, to Chicago? I do understand that early in your career, you were in a dance troupe and so you have show business in your blood am i right about this yeah well, it's in my blood by by work by proxy i see uh my parents were not performers at all i don't come from a performing film my mother is a natural dancer and still dances to this day but i don't come from it but yeah i from the time of like seven until college and then a, uh, my first few years at depaul i was in an inner city dance and theater program that toured the, to the country uh, pretty over 200 days a year. What, what did you do? Performances at yeah, various venues? Various venues, the Apollo, Disneyland, or Disney World, rather, in Orlando. We'd be in Houston. I was in New Orleans a lot, Atlanta. We, we, we traveled all over in different concert venues. It's the about a two-hour show. It's like a musical, but it's structured around the group of, of, of young uh, black kids who are, like, running their own company. And then we have dance numbers of, like, the the current music videos and like our gospel routines. And oh, things. fantastic. Yeah, it's just like a musical, but like really catered to us. What was the group called? They're Sparkle Dance Company. Sparkle Dance yeah. Company. Yeah, they're still in existence in Fairfield, Alabama. So what brought you to Chicago? When I got to high school, I was doing theater at high school at John Carroll Catholic High School in Birmingham. And my theater teacher, Dane Peterson, who was kind of like giving me a different kind of rigor for what theater was because I, I was pretty much steeped in Sparkle until I got to high school. And DePaul was like one of the brochures that was on the theater board. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, this looks cool. And yeah. then I looked and I saw that they accepted 52 people out of 10,000 and they cut half of the class from 52 to 26. Uh, to my 17-year-old sensibilities, if I could make it through the cut system, then I could probably make it as an actor. So uh, one winter and like, you know, winter of 2003, me and my parents came up here in the dead of winter to Chicago for the first time and I auditioned for the theater school. And Do you remember your audition pieces? I did Troy from Fences. Sweet. Yeah, the first time he left his dad's house. Mm -hmm. And I re just remember the audition process being very great and like if, if feeling very much like work and not an audition. And yeah. I like, like the people. Uh, and then I got in and that's, that's how I got here. For the first 10 years of my career, yeah. I was pretty much just acting. Yeah. Yeah. R Regina, how about you? You went to school at Santa Clara University in California. Yes, indeed. Go Broncos. <laughs> Go Broncos. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd known that. Darn. <laughs> 
how did you get yourself from Oakland to Santa Clara and then to Chicago? That seems like quite the journey. I have kind of been all over the place. I was born in Oakland, lived there for much of my young life, and then I went to boarding school uh, at Phillips Exeter. From there, I took a gap year and took, did some time to work. And I just want to be like, ooh, Exeter. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't go to Exeter. But, you know, after that very institutional experience, you know, needed some time to kind of reprogram and get reconnected with who I was and, and took some time to work and travel. Uh, and then I went to Santa Clara University, which is a Jesuit university, uh, which I think has a lot of uh, influence over who I am now, especially in terms of restorative justice and um, theology. I studied religion there. And so coming here, when I was in the Bay Area, there was a show, Pirates of Penzance uh, by the Hypocrites, that toured to Berkeley Rep. And, oh, um, sure. Yeah. Right. And it was a, very show. talked about. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I applied when a fellowship came up to be the associate artistic director here, uh, the Logan Fellowship. I flew out, and that's how I moved to Chicago, was through that fellowship. The company collapsed four months later, and then I decided to figure out, you know, I love new play development, so who could I talk to? What experiences could I start to have? And Megan Beals at Chicago Dramatists and Isaac Gomez kind of pointed me in the direction while I was working there of Victory Gardens and Steppenwolf. Mm. Um, So those were kind of the two theaters I really landed at, both through the Director's Inclusion Initiative at Victory Gardens and the Multicultural Fellowship at Steppenwolf. You're an associate producer at Court Theater now. Yes, indeed. That's a new position for you. Two months old. Mm-hmm. I think I read on your Facebook page that you believe you're the first black trans lord producer in the country. The reason I always say I believe I am is because it's really hard to tell given the history of like oppression and just being in the closet with trans individuals. Like I say openly trans person a lot. Openly, Because yes. I don't know who came before me due to sure. the way that we've kind of operated. But to my knowledge, I was kind of talking to another friend and we were kind of racking our brains for other producers in the country uh, that were of color and also trans and I would love for anyone to come and find me who has done this job before if they exist I would be overjoyed but thus far yeah it appears to be Wardell what prompted you to start directing because it seems like what you're most busy at these days in the in the last certainly well what 12 months or two years two years or so yes for sure many actors make this transition some successfully some not so successfully but you seem to be taking the bit between your teeth and you are going with it. You, you are booked show after show after show after show. How did you uh, decide to make this transition? First of all, yes, glory to God. Thank you. I take, <laughs> I take, I Amen. take, I take no, I, I really am very, very grateful for the work and being able to be booked as I am. And all glory to God to that, honestly. So I directed one thing in high school, like a one act play. And I was like, oh, that was fun. And never thought about it again. I was so laser focused on acting for the first 10 years. And then seven years into the business, I, I started to understand type and understand just the, the the industry as it worked as an actor. And I'll always be an actor. I'm like itching. Like I, I just hit my one year mark of not being on stage. And I've, I keep telling Regina, I keep telling them, I'm like, I get like next year, I got it next fall. I have to get back on stage because that itch is missing. You know, I'll be two years. I've never done that before. But I realized that I was not going to book a show that I loved and really wanted to be in and really wanted to be in the room for. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm good at a lot of things. 
So it was uh, Jim of the Ocean at Court Theater, and Ron O.J. Parson was director. August Wilson August play. Wilson, yes, Jim of the Ocean. And it's my favorite Wilson play. It's a young black man mm-hmm. from Alabama. On paper, I am the, that type. You know, I am that guy, literally in a lot of ways, that guy. But I know how casting works, and I, knew, I know how Ron works, and I knew I wasn't going to get cast in that role. So I was like, hey, Ron, can I be your assistant? He's like, yeah, yeah, you can... Yeah, 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 yeah. Let, let Cree know. You can be my assistant. It was like, great. So I get to be in the room. It was as easy as that. It was as easy as that. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that that experience was really validating for me in a lot of ways as a director uh, because Ron is someone who's like, he like went to go use a phone call at one moment. It was like, Wardell, get up and direct some shit. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> uh, okay, and then you're just like thrown into the fire, right? And either you're yeah. like doing it or you're, you're not, yeah. uh, and you're not thinking about it. You're just like doing the work. And I ended up also understudying Citizen Barlow in that production and going on half of Closing Weekend. So it was the first time that I had ever assistant directed and also understudied a show that I had d- partly directed and went on for. And then later that year, Charlie had asked Ron about how... how how great I was in that process. And Charlie Newell asked me to assist and direct for him. It's uh, the artistic director, director at of Court, Court Theater. Theater yes. Mm-hmm. Satchmore at the Waldorf, which is a one-man show about Louis Armstrong. And so after assistant directing those two shows, and then uh, Samuel, the late Samuel G. Robertson Jr., I was directing uh, the Scottsboro Boys at Porchlight. He was like, Wardell, you like musicals? I was like, I love musicals. I just never do them in the city. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, let's do Scottsboro Boys our way. And I said, yes, let's do the Scottsboro Boys our way because up until that point, only like Susan Stroman had ever touched this story. Sure. Like, so I was like thrilled and jumped at the chance for that. And Sam was like six. So I got to stretch my wings in, in, in other ways during that process. And then I went back to acting and, you know, went back and did uh, Silent Sky at first mm-hmm. video and didn't think about directing again. And then I was in New York auditioning for Othello that I played at Theater at Monmouth in Maine. And I saw Insurrection Holding History on... Uh, uh, my play brother from DePaul, Philip James Brennan's bookshelf. And I pulled it out and I posted a photo of Insurrection and said, someone needs to do this play in Chicago and I need to direct it. And within like 20 minutes, uh, Jason Fleece, who was a former artistic director at Stage Left, who went to DePaul with me, like messaged, reached out and said, hey, let's have a meeting about this play. And we sat down and like, you know, as passionate as I am as a human, like, pitched why I love this play and that's how I got my first play and then the ball just started rolling people it was a huge success people loved it and then through uh Lillian Brown who's a who's a mentor and supporter of mine uh has referred me for a couple of works and then after the shipment the Chicago yeah Regina and I yeah Regina and I talk about this a lot it kind of just like picked up with like Wardell shows after insurrection and the shipment yeah and then it just kind of you know have spiraled into this you, you know this doesn't happen like this every day to everybody uh, no I am that's why I say glory <laughs> to God glory because to God. I, I know this is a very specific very sure. gifted very favorite journey that I'm yeah. on and I do feel that so I'm I'm very very grateful well, congratulations. It's a phenomenal rise to fame, I must say. <laughs> Karen, you've been in the business a long time, so I take that very humbly. Yeah. You that. I really well, well, let's talk about a rise to fame. Let's talk about his shadow at 16th Street Theater a little mm. bit. You directed Wardell. You were the dramaturg yes. on the show. 
it's still running and it's been extended for a week, right? Through yes, next weekend. October 19th. Yeah, there are four October more October 19th. Four more performances. I don't think this taping is going to get out before uh, it closes, well, but I want to talk about it a little bit anyway. Well, I can say this. It has been recorded for the archives. Anyone who's listening to this can go to the Harold Washington Library and watch an archive performance of His Shadow. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's so exciting. Yeah. Regina, tell us a little bit about this play. Sure, yes. So our play opens with young Teeny, who is a college football player. He is from Tommy Smith and John Carlos, USA, uh, a fictionalized town named after two protesters from the Mexico City Olympics in 1968, who were protesting police violence and brutality even then, uh, and inequality for black folks in America. So Teeny goes off to college uh, and has to decide whether or not he will participate in these protests due to his own feelings and family events. The title comes from the fact that his brother is a very well-known and very famous NFL, NFL star. star and talented NFL, NFL star. star. Yes, mm-hmm. this is roughly based, taken inspired from, a, inspired by, by yes. the Cam Newton and Cam Newton's brothers, Cam and Kalen, Cam yeah. and Kalen's journey. Mm-hmm. Cam being, of course the famous NFL star. (laughs) Well, there is, in fact, an interview, actually, of Kalen saying, I just really hope one day to get out of his shadow. Mm -hmm. That kind of inspired the entire concept of the play. Mm -hmm. Because Kalen is also of much smaller stature, like Teeny in the play, where he gets his name. Yeah, and it's three actors. Yes. And Mm -hmm. the actor who plays Teeny... Charles Andrew Gardner. He plays that role throughout. But the other two play multiple roles. Yes. Coaches, teachers other students, things like that. It's really marvelously done. And you've created, Wardell, the most beautiful imagery. I I, I really felt that a football game could break out at any point on that stage, (laughs) even though it wasn't literally a football field with goalposts, but there were sort of bleachers. The ground was green. But beyond that, you got the sense that the athleticism could break out at any minute. You were talking about the other two actors, Marcus D. Moore and Anna Dosrodis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you that you liked that and felt that sense, Gary, of the football in the like the environment of it. Because what Lloyd wrote is such a specific story on the inside, but we should atmospherically we have to feel sensorily uh, what's happening in the world around with the football games with the fans all of that kind of stuff so in working with my set designer Sydney Lynn we spoke specifically about how to create an atmosphere that was both out of time and very specifically grounded in wherever this small college town in Mm -hmm. the middle of nowhere USA Mm -hmm. is and so that's why we came up with the two trophy cases that transition and create tunnels with with rays of light. The the bleachers in the back seemingly are just normal football bleachers, but they're actually inspired by Beyonce's Homecoming on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's that's a lot of Homecoming Easter eggs. Yeah, there's the a, there's a lot of Beyonce Homecoming Easter eggs in the play. For me, it was one of the most uh, transformative pieces of art when it was released in Netflix uh, documentary Homecoming about her work at Coachella. The way she took something that is old and part of our ancestral history and re invented it anew in Mm -hmm. that younger generation saw it differently that has inspired and has colored some of the tapestry of my work this entire Mm -hmm. season how was it working with Wardell Regina did you collaborate (laughs) Uh did you collaborate well (laughs) yeah you know as dramaturg I think so much of your job is negotiating how you would say something to somebody 
That is actually probably 70% of it because you are sort of there as an audience advocate and yet you're there to help everyone else do their job as best as they can. So you're like, there's just a lot of filtering your own notes and opinion. Um, and so working with Wardell, because we have such a great professional rapport and personal rapport, there was a lot of just getting to the work. And so I think a lot of work happened much faster than it usually would perhaps in a process uh, because that relationship building in that time, it was already there and we could come in and talk about culture setting and how we wanted actors to feel and like what we wanted moments to look like and what the structure should be and cut right through everything and get to the point. Sure. In full disclosure to our listeners, not only are you collaborators, but you also have a personal relationship, correct? Yes. Yeah. Is there, <laughs> tell me either one of you or both of you at the same time, tell me how you met. Oh, uh-huh. Is this there a good is story here? Yeah, kind of. I was. Um, I, 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 well, well, I'll let them go and and tell their quick version <laughs> oh, no. of it, and then I'll tell my slightly more extended version of the truth. Go oh, ahead. Oh no. <laughs> okay. The way I remember it, we were sitting at front bar. I think I just started work. Uh, it was. This very... is the bar in at Steppenwolf, the mm-hmm. new bar at Steppenwolf. Well, new, a couple of years now. <laughs> yes, but yes. Yeah, but newer at the time. It's certainly mm-hmm. I think it was like 2017. Yes. And I was there meeting my friend uh, to go to dinner afterwards and I was just sitting waiting for her to finish with her friends and Wardell very kindly tried to make conversation and I was a very cranky working person (laughs) and did not really give him the time of day which is funny because we became fast friends after that but that initial meeting is is hilarious. That initial meeting I'll never forget it because (laughs) I, I didn't know them at all. I, I didn't know who they were or their age. I, I, I saw they were uh, with a friend of mine, their best friend. And I was just like striking up a conversation. I had been out of town during Othello. And I saw them and was joking. And I think Chelsea said that, oh, we're going to go to dinner or something. And I was like, mm-hmm. where are y'all going to dinner? Like, I was just like, you know, kind of like, just like being cute and kind of flirting and inviting myself. Yeah, I thought he was very cute. Yeah. Uh, I, ha- I had on my summer rumper. I thought I was really cute. I Light see. Blue. Yeah. Cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah real, yeah, yeah, hot, right? Nice, yeah, I thought nice so. Look. Yeah, and they were having none of it. Regina Victor was having none of Wardell Julius Clark that day. <laughs> and to me, people who are like that, who like have a great spirit, that doesn't like necessarily like push me away. I'm just like, oh, I'll win you over. I'll get you. Oh, like I'm like, if there's one thing I know, I'm charming. So and like like and like they said, we became we literally became fast friends like right after that. Like the next time we met, we like hit it off. Did you manage to get an invite to dinner? That that night or was that you were just sort of <laughs> I did not know I, oh no, oh, no, no that initial that no, no 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 they shut Regina shut me down I, shut there was down. no yeah. way I was going I was to dinner like, with we're them. going to sushi it's far I was like, I was not. I was so not having it. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen my friend in a week. You know, it's one of those. But, you know, right, I'm glad right. that I was not always mean to. It's worked out great. Speaking of restaurants, I, I, I do need to just touch on this story that I saw the other day in the press. Celebrity chef Rick Bayless. You guys know Rick Bayless, who mm-hmm. runs Frontera Grill. and. Yeah. Uh, uh, and has been a longtime supporter of Chicago theater, has told the Chicago Tribune that he's writing a farce based on his experiences in the kitchen. Whoa. A- any interest, Wardell? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is more of a re- 
Gina directing project than a Wardell directing project? The as yet untitled project is is slated for the 2021 season at the Windy City Playhouse. The show is going to be about all the things we have to deal with in restaurants, Bayless said. Online reviews, the health department, so-called influencers, things like that. A high-end establishment like his own, he was asked? Well, not that high-end. We have to get some of that faulty towers stuff in there. If you've ever worked at a Uh. restaurant, Bayless said, and and I have worked at a couple of restaurants, you will know that failures happen all the time and everyone in a kitchen wants to taste them. So this could be a really fun thing. I I I think it sounds cool. It's going to be really cool. I mean, their productions, uh, people seem to really, really love them. I think the reason that it could be really interesting and or more of a me thing is because I really am into those things that look at like what we deal with through a very specific lens of culture. Mm -hmm. So like the idea of exploring racism and indulgence and classism through the eyes of a kitchen where we know bonkers things happen because of Gordon Ramsay. Like I'm into it. Sure. I call myself really old fashioned. Like I'm a really... (laughs) old-fashioned theater person give me some curtains you know give me an orchestra you know seating give me like a, a your standard theater like in the theater in the black box like you know what i mean like i love the old school style of theater regina is someone who 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 loves that as well, but also sure. is is super interested in all of the different ways that theater can exist, how theater can exist, where theater can exist. So I always lean to them for different forms of art, of immersive theater and interactive theater. Like they have some brilliant ideas for how to tell old stories and old classics, and just the way the conversations that we have about work. So things like that to them. Yeah. That's that's why initially when you when you uh, gave the concept, I was like. Oh, I think that's a Regina Victor idea. That's Sounds something they like. would be so Sounds good. like right up your alley. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I just, it could be really fun. I don't know if he's much of a writer and if he can put the faulty stuff that happens in restaurants into <laughs> a textual context that's amusing and... That's what dramaturgs are for. That's what... <laughs> write that down. Right, right. I have to ask you about this, Regina. Yeah. Now that we're speaking about your sort of philosophy of directing or approaching live performance you consider and i think this is off of your website you Mm. consider civic engagement radical hospitality and equity to be the core of their artistic practice you were a scholar of religion at santa clara university you mentioned you were familiar with radical hospitality but they honed in on how it could be applied to the theatrical field while developing notes from the field with anna devere smith mm-hmm. first of all what is notes from the field and more importantly describe radical hospitality to me i'm not sure i'm familiar with that term radical hospitality in a religious sense and in a cultural sense being a radical love or invitation, right? That everyone is welcome at my table, right? So it doesn't matter what class you are, uh, what you look like, everybody is radically included, right? Which means there's no exclusion. To be radically inclusive and to be radically hospitable, that's why I think those are kind of two different things, right? Being radically hospitable means I'm opening the doors for anything to grow, everything has an equal value and potential rather than radical uh, inclusion, which is more uh, inclusion and exclusion. I think when there's inclusion, there has to be exclusion, right? So I lean, I tend to go towards hospitality and setting a frame. But Notes from the Field specifically was a collection of stories. Anna Devere Smith does documentary theater. Uh, so interviewing people like the mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, the first person to do a basic income, and various educators and people in the field about the school-to-prison pipeline. And part of that 
project was a 30-minute post-show discussion that we each had to facilitate with about 30 audience members where we had to answer the question, how would you solve the school-to-prison pipeline? So every night we had 30 minutes and a new audience to solve this question. And it taught me how to lay a discussion that everyone could be a part of, whether they were a student, whether they were a police officer, whether they were a judge, whether they were a millionaire, um, and trying to bring all of those people to the same table. Taught me a lot of things about empathy and kindness and how to listen to people and how if people were just heard and if their opinion was acknowledged as valid, then it could be changed. So radical hospitality in my work, ways that it practically uh, exhibits itself, we just did auditions for Pro-Am, which is a play I'm super excited to do at Sideshow in May of 2020. And we opened that up for submissions, for self-submissions, which is kind of an unusual thing to do because I thought, given the genders and the races of these characters and how that was flexible, and this is a new play, that we should let people uh, tell me what they thought. And I will say right now, uh, we whittled that list. We got about 250 people that submitted and we saw about 100 folks and not a single person was a bad audition. Every single person was so invested. Every single person brought their own version of that character because they were able to see themselves and not be told. So setting that bed of radical hospitality, I think, constantly makes the work better. And in addition to that, the one of the characters is a trans character. Um, we've already had six people who are trans and non-binary work on the script, and I plan to have six more before we open. So those kinds of open, hospitable, and equitable practices are really important to mm-hmm. my work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask this question of you, Wardell, because I think I already know the answer. Who, who are your favorite directors? My favorite directors, that's a great question, Gary. Bob Fosse. Yeah. Uh, I heard this. <laughs> you know, like, I can go say somebody else. I heard this. Uh, Bob Fosse. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that fascination. Uh, if, it is, if it is a fascination, it might, it no, might be no. a fascination, it might be an inspiration. All, all, of, the, of, the, all of, of the above. Yeah, no. um, and I... I talk about him like I met the man. Uh, so I'm like, Bob did this and Bob did that. No, but for we me... We all call him Bob. Yeah. For me, his drive and specificity of work and style of work, although he, he, he never directed a straight play, I think what made him such a great artist was the way he chose to tell stories. He found his lane and created inside of his lane in a way that no one had. I'm looking at this poster of Dream Girls and I'm thinking about uh, Bob versus Michael Bennett and like their styles of work. And while, while Michael's work is beautiful and very specific and akin to him as a dancer, Bob's work uh, based on vaudeville and his childhood influencing his, I think that's because me being a child performer and understanding how Bob was a, was a child performer and how that informs all of the work that I do now. Uh, but particularly just uh, his, his his craftsmanship on stage, on film, uh, on TV. I'm thinking Liza with a Z, you know, on TV. Uh, just the craftsmanship of storytelling, someone who is a natural born dancer like me. Bob was not a great actor, but his ability to put that on to artists in his work has always been very, very inspirational for me. I think uh, Regina knows that I've probably read every Bob Fosse biography. I think Fosse Verdon uh, showed him in a very different light than people had seen. And that persp- all, all of those things I knew, uh, but seeing it on, on TV in that reflection of the work, I saw a human being in a way that I hadn't seen before, but it did not make me 
any less inspired or like less of a fan of the man. But th- that quality of, of work and that style and that specificity, when you go and see a Wardell Julius Clark show, people always talk about the style and the specificity and the cleanness of it and how how fluid it is. And those are things that that Fosse has inspired. I've gone to the Lincoln Center Library and watched every show that he's directed. I've seen every original production and that fluid and that specificity that carried him until his death in 87 is is something that greatly inspired. Another one would be George C. Wolfe. Mm-hmm. George C. Wolfe is a huge, huge and inspiration of mine for the daring risk-taking direct affront of calling white people out to their faces in small spaces and having them like sit and live in that and not be able to ex- mm-hmm. like run away is something that that George did very early on at the public and very much is of inspiration to me and then here you know there's always uh uh Ron O.J. Parson and, and Chuck mm-hmm. Smith who sure. who took me on as a young actor and directed me early as a young actor, uh, but also who I've learned a great deal from about the rehearsal process, Mm -hmm. about getting uh, different things out of actors, uh, ways of communication. But stylistically, uh, when I think about my style and my influence and who are like my greatest inspirations, it's definitely Fosse and George C. Wolfe. You couldn't ask for two better (laughs) answers than that. Regina, I mentioned at the top uh, that you created a platform called Rescripted Mm -hmm. in 2017, I think. Um, Tell us about what Rescripted is and how we can get there. Yeah, uh, so Rescripted.org is the fastest way to get there. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Rescripted is an online arts-led journalism platform. Uh, We focus on reprogramming the way that we critique each other uh, using an empathetic lens and cultivating new voices in the field. So yeah, uh, our youth program right now is underway. Uh, The key Young Critics Mentorship Program, which has been in existence for exactly as long as the company, which is wild if you really think about it. Um, But I think I started it because I realized that there was no way I could sustain Rescripted without immediately training people. So we started the key right away. It's a free program. We have six students. uh, And we go see a bunch of shows and they build their portfolio. And one of my alumni is writing for American Theater right now. So I'm feeling really good about that. And is this all theatrical criticism? or is it cultural criticism as well or media criticism uh, so, know, is it film as well it's as a great theater? question because I think you know the industry is changing a lot so sure. scripted itself is uh, theater criticism but also industry criticism in a way the key is theater criticism focused but we also have a week of like multimedia reviews my co-facilitator and co-founder Oliver Sava uh, is a critic for Vox uh, the Chicago Reader Vulture and AV Club and he primarily reviews comic books Um, because we recognize that if you want a career, you have to be able to do comics, film, movies, TV. You can make a dollar a word writing about Marvel for Entertainment Weekly, for example. So you have to be able to do that to, you know, supplement your criticism reviews, which on average pay about $45 a review in the city of Chicago. Uh, As I was building Rescripted's pay scale and trying to find, you know, a a healthy medium, it was interesting to see some people are 15, some people are 45. Like, I think the highest was maybe time out at 150 back in the day. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did I see something coming up in your near future that you're going to be giving? Sorry, this is the vaguest question I've ever asked on Booth One. I got it. In 102 episodes, (laughs) something about is theatrical criticism necessary or Mm -hmm. is criticism necessary in our work? 
mm-hmm. in what you guys do. Uh, are you going to be giving a talk about that soon? Well, I, uh, I think I wrote an essay called What is a Reviewer Good For? There you go. <laughs> That's uh, it. Which is, yeah, which is based off of a session uh, that I co-facilitated at TCG. Mm. Um, and I think that it poses some really important questions as to what is our actual job. I think for me, criticism is really about, you know, our mission says empathy, but it started with love. And that's because I think love is a more active and useful word than empathy a lot of the time, but it's one that makes people balk uh, at face value if they don't really understand it. But the reason that I say love is because if I love my friend, I don't let them walk out of the house wearing like an inner tube and a crazy pink wig and all these things because they, they look a mess. I'm going to tell them that, right? If I don't love them, I let them walk out the door looking like that. That's, that's how it works. Yeah. You know, and so for yeah. me, it's very clear about it changes the intention of why I'm saying something about a show. Uh, it's because I actually want you to grow and do better and I know you can do better. It's not because I want you to fail or I'm enjoying being snarky. We joke a lot about the second sentence. Like the first sentence is naming something and the second sentence is how you feel about it and you almost never need that second sentence, which I think is like pervasive in criticism. Something else I wanted to bring to people's attention is that there is going to be a Chicago Chicago celebrates Sondheim. Are you a Sondheim fan, uh, Wardell? We both are. Yeah, We're absolutely. A huge Sondheim fan. Chicago <laughs> celebrates Sondheim at the Auditorium Theater. It's being co-produced by the Auditorium. Oh, wow. uh, Joan Curto is the director of this. It's November 16th. That's a Saturday night. I think it's at 8 o'clock, but I'm not a- absolutely sure. There's also a gala reception and dinner at the Palmer House beforehand, if you choose to want to go that way. Mm. It's going to salute Stephen Sondheim, who celebrates his 90th birthday this season with a one-night-only performance. And you'll hear some local singers across the city bringing their unique voices to selections from, well, you you know, all the greats. Sweeney Todd, Follies Company, West Side Mm -hmm. Story. The Legends' beloved music will be performed by the Chicago Philharmonic. That's pretty cool. Conducted by Rich Daniels. Wardell, I want to ask you about the Living History Program at Timeline. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, the Living History Program is our educational program uh, run by Juliet Hart, Timeline Company member, where we do week-long residencies with under, underserved Chicago public schools uh, who do not have arts programs. And we go into classes that are not arts related at all based on what the play is. So uh, we go into sociology classes. When we did spill about the BP oil spill, we went into environmental science classes. Mm. And we do week-long residencies about the play, teaching about the play, how actors attack the play. We have a dramaturgy day. To, to so they the dramaturg gives a, a kind of synopsis of the play and all the things they would tell the actors and then we bring the students to the theater to see the play after we've worked on it for a week and then the next day very unique to our program and not like many other programs the actors who are in the play the next day go to the school mm-hmm. with in the classrooms with the students who just saw them the day before and they get to have a Q&A session and then they get to get up and act the same scenes that they just saw the day before uh, with the actors in the classroom where was this when I was a kid <laughs> right oh my god yeah I, I love it so much because I, I, I've taught at a couple of different places and obviously I have friends who are teaching artists all over the city at a lot of different theaters mm. but our program is so unique in the like the conciseness of it because it's only like a week and a half we're not there during a whole unit you know what i mean we're there for a very short amount of time the the amount of growth that we see in them and and particularly those people who are not performers at all Mm -hmm. who are not 
speakers or like the class clown or like the class vocalist or like the class person who answers all the questions. And the way you see quiet, uh, unsure, insecure young people trying to find themselves, find their voice in characters. I'll give her clip now thinking about it. It's the <laughs> most overwhelming thing consistently. It's just a really unique program unlike anything else. In those days, they're coming in asking the questions to the actors and then everyone's like, oh, we're like now we're going to get up and do some scenes. And everyone's like, uh-oh. And then you see that first person like, well, I'll do a scene. And it doesn't have to be a scene we rehearsed. You can like cold read a scene from the play you saw yesterday. Yeah. You have the actors yeah. in the room. And that's how I started because I was in A Raisin in the Sun at Timeline in 2013. And I went in to Von Stoop in high school as an actor on actor day to answer questions and, and work with the students. And Juliet Hart was like, you're really great with kids. Like, uh, <laughs> you're like, the way you facilitate the questions and the conversation. She's like, have you thought about being a teaching artist? I was like... No, but I really like that work. And yeah, I would like to continue yeah, that for work. Sure. Well, Booth One is focused on giving the Chicago theater community a forum for telling their stories and sharing their passions. In fact, we are one of the very few outlets in Chicago for that process. So if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like Wardell and Regina, you can go to our website at booth-one.com. That's booth-one.com and click on the donate button. It's easy, it's quick, and it's tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. You know about nonprofit entities, Regina. Indeed I do. Any and all contributions would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Let's talk about your current and upcoming projects. I definitely want to get those pitches oh, in <laughs> before, we, before we run out of too much more time. Regina, tell me about what's coming up for you. One thing sure. I'm particularly interested in is this Empower Youth at the Lyric Opera. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's something I'm very excited about. You um, mentioned you're already working on uh, Oedipus at court, right? You're yes. in the middle of that process. Yeah. Yes. And just I'm checking that whole season, just producing support. Sure. So that's always in the background of court <laughs> theater. Empower Youth is a program that I learned of this year um, at the Lyric Opera, where they have 30 black teens from across the city. They come in and I serve as an acting mentor for about seven months. And then in the last two months, I joined the opera union, uh, AGMA, and we direct a performance that is going to be written by Christiana Ray Cologne as our librettist and professional composers. So I have never been in an environment like this where there's so much support and so many, I mean, we feed the kids when they come in, there's social workers on site, like the structure is incredible and I'm excited to get into the work uh, with these young people. Other things this year, uh, Graveyard Shift at the Goodman I'm with Cord Arrington Tuttle and Danya Taymor. Uh, I'll be assistant directing and script supervising that. And then Pro-Am. Oh, actually, before I get to Pro-Am, I have Marie Antoinette and the Magical Negroes, yes. which is technically not a full production yet, uh, but it'll be a showing in February of 2020. It is a play about rage in America and the power of black rage and protest, specifically through history leading back to Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution. And wow, crazy, yeah. right? Who, yes. who would think of something like this? Harry Guest Harry at the Guest. Story Theater, and Paul Michael Thompson is brilliant enough to produce it. So those young folks are phenomenal at that company. They are in their second season. My favorite new theater company. My fa hands it's unbelievable. down. My favorite. What, what's the, it called again? Uh, the Story Theater. The Story, Story Theater. theater. Yes, yeah. my favorite new theater company in Chicago right now. They yeah. are just 
killing the game so with their work. So professional, so creative, and I am enjoying working there so much. And then finally, Pro-Am, which has been me and Bryn Frauenhofer's baby for like, it'll be three years it'll by the be- time we get to production. And it's about the professional amateur porn industry in Miami, Florida. And the women that come in and out of that house, the performers, and voyeurism and desire, but also like the way that we put our desires on these people, what happens if we then look directly at their humanity and see what happens to ourselves so it's messy and fun and exciting and the cast such is such a great script we just cast it and it's fire and I cannot wait to share it with everybody Wardell what's happening with you I know you're in the middle of directing a new show at Raven I'm now in rehearsals for a Hoodoo Love uh, by Katori Hall mm. it is a gorgeous play with blues inspired it's a, it's a, in the Great Depression I've said it in 1935 about a young woman who's come up from Mississippi who has dreams and ambitions of being a blues singer and falls in love with the the rambling, gambling blues man, Ace of Spades. She lives next to a hoodoo woman named Candy Lady who's a former slave who lets her know, like she practices hoodoo, and she lets her know that like she could lay a trick on him if she always wants his love. And things do not turn out the way she thought they would. Our first previews on Halloween, and people think like hoodoo, they immediately think voodoo. And hoodoo is nothing like voodoo. Uh, mm-hmm. Voodoo, it's about darkness and emptying yourself out so that dark spirits can come in and take over you. And you can manifest negative things to happen. Hoodoo actually is about root work and spirituality and ancestral energy that you're using all the things and all the powers that you have inside yourself to manifest the things that you want in your life. Hoodoo is a very positive thing uh, that comes from the enslaved people having to manifest their way out of really hard times. And this is called Hoodoo Love. Hoodoo Love. It's it's a beautiful love story at Raven Theater. Uh, and it starts on Halloween it and it runs a, through November. It, uh, yeah, yeah, it runs December. It runs. Uh, we close December fifteenth. Fantastic. So it will yeah, be running great. quite a while. What and, else for you? Uh, and then after that, I will be at Shattered Globe directing a new play called Sheepdog. It is a two hander. Uh, about two Cleveland cops, a black woman and a white man who are madly in love. Then uh, something happens in the line of duty with with the, the, the white male police officer and his partner, life partner, uh, not work partner, his life partner, his black girlfriend, fiance even, is forced to figure out the truth of what what actually happened on that day as opposed to what he told her. Uh, it is it is a part of my continued 1920 season about police brutality and social justice that will start January the 14th I think it's first mm-hmm. preview concurrently with that I will be starting rehearsals for what I call my baby this is actually the only other show other than insurrection that I've ever pitched in my entire directing career the past two years uh, like <laughs> <laughs> it is a play by James Imes called Kill Move Paradise it sets Three black men and one black boy in a purgatory-like setting who are killed by the cops, figuring out how they got there before they pass over into the afterlife. It's kind of like no exit. I think people think it's going to be a very dark, heavy play, which it is in moments, but it is also a celebration. It is a honoring. It is not a dirge. You know, in the black community, we call our funerals homegoing celebrations. This is truly a celebration of life with these four black men. Finally, I get to come home at my home theater timeline and do this gorgeous gorgeous play which i actually think is going to rock chicago Mm. you know not to give anything away or spoiler alerts there is fire and levitation yep 
You, you don't mess around <laughs> yeah. when you do a show. My gosh. I do, I do not. That's why when I'm tired, I'm not really tired because I like, I'm like fueled by the work. Yeah. And he actually is never tired. Like <laughs> someone who's, who's I, a lot I of I can time. tell this. Yeah. Well, we finish our episodes each week with a segment that I call the kiss of death. This could be right up your alley, Wardell. You never know. I'm excited by the name. I don't know what it is, but Thank I'm excited. You. <laughs> it is really a celebration of someone who we've just lost, who's just passed. Could be in show business, could be not, could be famous, could be not so famous. Today, I'm going to talk about Diane Carroll, mm. who passed just a week ago. Diane Carroll, the captivating singer and actress who came from the Bronx to win a Tony Award and receive an Oscar nomination and make television history with her turns on Julia and Dynasty. You, do you remember she was on Dynasty? Yes, I, Dominic <laughs> Devereaux is everything to me, yes. Oh my! Carroll was known as a nightclub Hollywood and Broadway performer when she was approached to star as Julia Baker, a widowed nurse raising a young son on the comedy Julia. Yeah. She didn't really want to do it. I really didn't believe this was a show that was going to work she said. However, when Carol learned that the creator, Hal Cantor, thought she was too glamorous for the part, she was determined to change his mind. She altered her hairstyle and mastered the pilot's script, quickly convincing him that she was the right person. Carol thus became the first African-American female to star in a non-stereotypical role in her own primetime network series. Her character, whose husband died in Vietnam, worked for a doctor at an aerospace company. Uh, she was educated and outspoken, and she dated some very successful men during the series, including characters played by Fred Williamson, Paul Winfield, and Don Marshall. We were saying to the country, and this is Diane Carroll quoting here, we're going to present a very upper middle class black woman raising her child and her major concentration is not going to be about suffering in the ghetto, Carroll noted. Many people were incensed about that. They felt that African Americans didn't have that many opportunities on television or in film to present our plight as the underdog. They felt the real world suffering was much too acute to be so trivial as to present a middle class woman who is dealing with the business of being a nurse. Do you find that to be valid criticism of the series, Wardell? I, I, of the series of Julia? Yeah. I think that is, that is a valid point. Black people, I say this often, we're not a monolith. Uh, there are many, many different experiences. And I think that show was groundbreaking for one of the first uh, pieces of television that presented black people in that light in general. Julia was not without struggle. She was not without the systems that, that white supremacy and white institutions exist in. It just manifested in a different way in that show as opposed to something like Good Times, which people were more uh, accustomed to, to seeing. I think we need it all. I think this is a conversation that continues from then, before then, and now, and tomorrow about how we tell stories, how we choose to be represented, what we choose to see. I was having a conversation with a, f a friend of mine who saw a show in New York that has a lot of contentious conversations, particularly in the black community, about how we're presented. And that very conversation about what side of ourselves do we choose to show? And I always say we have to show all of ourselves. Uh, I, I, I understand why people were resistant to that, but someone who is a, a, in a middle class environment, the, uh, that black person exists, that white, that black woman existed, and and while there are different struggles uh, when you talk about class in a, in a different way, that's not a place uh, for for all of them. I I, mm -hmm. I, I, I think we have to have all mm -hmm. of them. 
Regina, were you a fan of the show? I mean, before yeah. your time, obviously, but <laughs> yeah, you, I'm sure you've seen it in on syndication, syndication yeah. or and, streaming and or my something. Folks, you know, my, my dad is a is a huge, huge television fan. For me, I'm like, I need a, a good dose of unapologetic and happy black people uh, as well. <laughs> you know what dose. I mean? Yeah. Like, dose. I mean, even with the play that I'm, I'm going to do, Pro Am, I'm like, what's so attractive to me about that play is it's people going to work, everyone's health for the most part everyone's happy for the most part like it's not about people struggling and being broke and being sad or if they are broke they're it's just not that same kind of outward destitution it's just an everyday struggle and i think it's really important to remind people of humanity without a cultural context that can like overwhelm well because the thing you never get to be when you're black is a surprise I come into that a lot moving here from California, like the experiences people kind of expect me to have. Like folks have literally said things to me like, you probably have never left the country or like they probably didn't have this in your neighborhood. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like it's very bizarre. But like that idea of like, you know, you probably haven't left the South Side or you probably haven't, you know, it pervades. Yeah. And so I think it is nice when you have a variety of experiences so people just know that it's possible. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> well, Julia premiered in September of 1968. Wow. Finished number seven in the ratings in the first of its three seasons, and Carol received an Emmy nomination at a Golden Globe for her work. Carol made perhaps the biggest mark on the big screen with her scrappy title role performance in Claudine. Claudine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1974, playing a Harlem woman on welfare who raises six children on her own and falls for a garbage collector, played by... James Earl Jones. Attaboy. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you would know that. <laughs> Carol was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar for her performance in that film. As the sultry fashionista, the aforementioned Dominique Devereaux, the first prominently featured African-American character on a primetime soap opera, Carol played a much edgier character for three seasons on ABC's Dynasty, delightfully dueling with fellow diva Alexis Carrington Colby, played by... <laughs> Joan Collins. Carol Diane Johnson was born in the Bronx in 1935. Her father was a subway conductor. Her mother was a nurse, <laughs> oddly. She mm. earned admission to the High School of Music and Art, where Billy D. Williams was a classmate. At 15, she began to model clothing for, who knew? I mean, it was <laughs> unbelievable. For black wow. audience magazines like Ebony and Jet, her dad disapproved at first, then reconsidered when she told him she'd earned $600 for a session. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Dad. (laughs) She won several times on, this again is well before your time, but there was a uh, television show hosted by Arthur Godfrey called Talent Scouts. Very early precursor to stuff like American Idol or The Voice, things Mm -hmm. like that. She won several times on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. You'd come back week after week and compete against other people where she first billed herself as Diane Carroll. She appeared on the Dennis James-hosted talent show Chance of a Lifetime, also very similar, in 1953, and won for several weeks there. One of her rewards was a regular engagement to perform at the famed Latin Quarter in Mm. Manhattan. She soon was singing at the Persian Room at New York's Plaza Hotel and other hotspots, including Ciro's, the Macambo, the Cloister in Hollywood, and the Black Orchid in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Very famous. Carol was brought to Los Angeles to audition for Otto Preminger's Carmen Jones in 1954, landing the role of Mert opposite Harry Belafonte and Dorothy Dandridge. She was cast to play Clara in Preminger and Ruben Mamoulian's, I just love saying Ruben Mamoulian's, I could have cut that, but I just love saying his name. <laughs> good name. Movie adaptation 
rendition of Porgy and Bess in 1959, but her voice was considered too low for her character's summertime number, so another singer dubbed for her. If you go to YouTube, you can find footage of Diane Carroll's summer variety show that she did back in 1976, and there is an extended, extended cut of her and Sammy Davis Jr. doing songs from Porgy and Bess because he was sporting life but he wanted to play Porgy and she wound up playing Clara but wanted to be Bess. Bess. It's a wonderful duet. He sings, she sings, they sing together. It's really fantastic. Richard Rogers spotted her during one of her frequent singing appearances and decided to compose a Broadway musical for her. Isn't that how things just happen? Yeah, you know. It's how it will happen for you, Wardell. I just know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's going to say, hey, I want to write a Broadway musical for you. Okay. Hey. He wrote, Get into existence. He wrote 1962's No Strings, a love story revolving around an African-American fashion model and a nebbish white novelist played by Richard Kiley, who went on to become famous as Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha. It brought Carol rave reviews and a Tony Award, the first given to a black woman for best actress in a lead role yeah. in a musical. Yeah. Soon after hosting the Summer Variety Show in 76, as I mentioned, Carol retired from show business and moved to Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Landing the role of Dominique on Dynasty in 1984 put her back on the Hollywood map. Carol recorded several albums during her career and wrote memoirs, including Diane and, (laughs) I love the name of this memoir, The Legs Are the Last to Go, Aging, Acting, Marrying, Mothering, and Other Things I Learned Along the Way. Yes. I love that title so much. (laughs) She was married four times. I won't bore you with the husbands. She also had a three-year romance with talk show host David Frost and what she described as a very turbulent nine-year relationship with Sidney Poitier. She was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 2011. Diane Carroll, pioneering actress, was 84. Yes, yes. Incredible. Oh, my God. What a life. What a life. No What what a legend. May we be so blessed. (laughs) No, truly, truly. Just just a kid from the Bronx. I love Diane Carroll so, so, so much. Well, you are both remarkable people. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for your candor and your insight and uh, just your knowledge of theater and uh, the world and your passion for what you believe in. Well, thank you for having us, Gary. It's been really fun talking to you. <laughs> no, it's been it's been awesome. a really, really yeah. blast. I'm, I'm so happy. Visit booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One and Wardell Clark and Regina Victor, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.